Hey, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 34. If you don't have a Bible and you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you, I mean, we'd love for you to take that home with you if you don't have access to a copy of God's Word. If you're unfamiliar with how to use the Bible, there's a table of contents at the front of there. And then as you work your way through it, the large numbers are going to be chapters, the small numbers are going to be verses. Again, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 through 34 this morning. Now, this is uh, admittedly and really begins at least kind of a bizarre way uh, Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to see that in verse 29. But but what I want you to keep in your mind as we go through this is that there are a variety of things that if I were to ask you if you believe them, right, and you say, oh, yeah, you know, I believe this about this or I believe that about that, and then we're to evaluate how you live your life, what we would find over and over again is that whether or not what you say measures up with the way that you live. So let me give you an example personally, okay? So I go to the doctor and, and they take a little blood sample and it comes back and it says, look, you've got high cholesterol. If you were to exercise more and to cut out red meat, you can be perfectly healthy and you can continue on this line. But if you don't, you're going to have to have it, we're going we're gonna to have to change something. And so what do I do? I said, what else can I do? And so, well, not much. You're going to have to give up bacon. And I say, look, look, really, though, like when you say bad, like what does that look like? Like drop dead bad? And so I, I think about it, and I just, I don't make very many changes. I, I, I buy the fish oil pills, which, which I'll tell you, like if this is the route you're going to go down, take the pill, then eat. Like that's the only way or else everybody smells fish every time you breathe. And so it's just not great. And, and so I went on, and I did this for a number of months, and but, but fundamentally and most important, I didn't cut out red meat because I love it. I didn't cut out bacon because I'm not willing, right? And so I go back, and I have this test done again, and I got the results just a couple of weeks ago. And, and so I'm talking to the doctor on the phone, and, and they're going over, and they're like, well, we, we haven't seen a substantial change. Did you make big changes to your diet? Did you make, and I said, I got to be real honest, I didn't. I didn't do those things. Well, and so the question that, that I felt wanted to be asked but wasn't asked was, did you not believe what I said? And I would have said, I did believe what you said. I just really didn't care enough to give up bacon. And we see this same idea would, would translate within, within a local body. There are a number of things that, that if I were to ask you do, you, do you believe this to be true about what the word says? Do you believe that, that it says this is what our actions need to be like? This is what our heart's dis, dis, disposition, oh my goodness, needs to be like towards other believers and followers of Jesus Christ? You'd say, well, in, in some sense, I do believe this, but we create a terrific number of caveats that allow us not to move in line of this direction. And I would just tell you that, that, that where errant belief creeps in, where heresy creeps in, it thrives when it's not addressed. And so let's just say, for instance, and for example, that this beautiful couple here on the front row, right, or in the second row on this side, that if they were, there you go, hold up, if, if they were to begin to believe something that is destructive to the gospel, and for whatever reason, everybody here on this side of the room just said, you know what, it's over there and it's isolated, and it, it just won't impact me. 
and it's okay. They can live on the island of Crazyville all they wanted. It won't impact us. What I would tell you is, is that these people over here aren't going to keep this wonderful truth to themselves. They're going to turn to the people behind them. And they're going to say, do you know what we believe? And they're going to begin to communicate it. And they're going to turn to the people behind them. Do you know what we believe? And they're going to turn to communicate it. And then eventually what you're going to find is that the island of Crazyville will export their heresy and will infect your island of isolation. And it happens predictably. And one of the ways that we can see it coming, one of the ways that we can tell it's on its way is that what we say we believe is not being translated into action. Now, what we see here uh, as Paul addresses this group, Paul's been just belaboring the, the veracity, the truthfulness of the resurrection. He's been calling them to understand, look, if the resurrection isn't true, all of these other things fail. If the resurrection isn't true, your faith is in vain or preaching is in vain. Your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And he comes back to it again. And, and what we'll find is that there are those there in Corinth that if you're to ask them, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? They were to say, if I can be perfectly honest, no. No, we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But we find the most curious thing happening here in verse 29. Look at what Paul says. He says, otherwise... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead aren't raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? And so if, if Paul were to, to go to them, to write to them and say, uh, friends, let me ask you, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? They'd say, come on, Paul, we, we've been over this before. Of course, you know, we don't believe it. And so Paul begins to look at their behavior pattern. And he begins to find they're engaged in, in the most curious of activities, right? So he's not endorsing this behavior, but what he finds is that they effectively had entered into this deal of kind of this Pascal's wager idea of, of belief and philosophy. It's better to engage and to do this thing and to be wrong than to not do it and have been wrong. And so they didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead, but when they thought about their family members who had died, they said, what if Paul's onto something? What, what if this resurrection of the dead is actually a real thing? And, and, and what if even outside of that, we could do something completely wild and completely insane and maybe we could just be baptized on their behalf? Now notice Paul doesn't endorse this behavior. And of course, if you read Romans 6 and elsewhere, you'll find that being baptized for dead people does nothing more than get you wet and leave them dead. But still somehow they believed that it was impactful to the people who had gone before them. You see, they didn't change their belief. It wasn't that they began to believe in the power of the resurrection. It was just simply that they said, we need to hedge our bets and do this action even though we don't believe it's true. And so let me ask you a question today. If somebody were to go through and evaluate the ways that you're living, to read the New Testament, to read through the Old Testament, would your life be directly in line with what God's word says? Or would they find that what you've done in essence is to create silos of belief? Silos of belief where you say, I'm going to believe this, I'm going to allow it to permeate all the way down to the bottom, but then I'm going to divorce this from any action or any belief set outside of this. And unfortunately, what I think you'll find in, in, in the vast majority of us, over and over and over again, we either have explicit or implicit silos. We either have things that, that are absolutely obvious to everybody around us that you don't really believe this. If you really believe this, it would be quite obvious. Or what we'll find is we evaluate God's word if we humbly submit ourselves in prayer that we do, in fact, have holes in our belief system. 
Now look at the way Paul questions us on this and look at the way he challenges us on this. Within the book of 2 Corinthians, when Paul opens it up, and this is either his second or his third letter to them, depending on, on whether or not his third letter to them came before this, he wants them to understand the limits or effectively the fact that our faith has no limits. And so he writes to them, he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond belief, our strength, that we despaired of life itself. He writes to this church, he says, look, I want you to understand how far we were willing to go for the expansion of the gospel. We thought that we would die. We thought that our life itself was going to expire. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us what? To rely not on ourselves, but upon God who raises the dead. When Paul looks and evaluates his life and evaluates its impactfulness, and looks and begins to ask the question of what margins or what safeguards have I put in place in my life, he would say that there, there aren't any. There's nothing in my life that, that's off limits. There's, there's no call that God would, would put upon my life that I say, look, I'm just not willing to do this. Because as Paul understands his relationship with Christ, he says it is a relationship with no end. It's a relationship with no end. And so he asked this question rhetorically of himself and the apostles. He says, why are we in danger every hour? In essence, look, if the resurrection isn't true, why would we choose to live like this? If the resurrection isn't true, why would we choose to live like this? Now, the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11 gives us this whole list of all these various ways that he's engaged in putting himself in harm's way. And perhaps you haven't read this, so let's turn there together. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. Speaking to his opponents, he says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at the sea. On frequent journeys. In dangers in rivers. In danger from robbers. In danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at the sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardships. Through many sleepless nights. In hunger and thirst. And often without food. In cold and exposure. And apart from all things, there's the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who's made to fall? And I'm not inwardly indignant. Paul puts it out there just at face value. and says, listen, if the resurrection isn't true, why in the world would I live this way? Paul has so significantly allowed the truth of the resurrection, the truth of who Jesus is, to impact and infect his life that for Paul there is absolutely no margin. That for Paul there's absolutely nothing that is kept off guard. That for Paul... Absolutely, there's nothing that you would look at it and say, Paul, you seem to have set up this neat little silo of belief so that it's not very costly for you to engage in faith. As Paul evaluates his life and he invites those others to come in. So this is the thing that always gets me. When Paul runs through that list of all the various things that he's done and all the various things he's endured, he doesn't do so in an effort to put everybody in their place. He does so in an effort to invite everybody in to say, this, tr this too can be true of you. 
If you would submit yourself, if you would live faithfully unto God, then this too can be true of you. You can live this type of transformative faith that knows no margins. If you'd allow the depths and the promise of the resurrection to completely impact everything about us. In fact, Paul calls to those who are struggling in the midst of this there in Corinth, and he says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Paul's echoing the sentiment of being crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20. And he's inviting uh, them to let this be the reality of their faith, to let this be the truthfulness of their faith, that their faith wouldn't merely be this thing that they know, this set of facts that they're able to recite as if we sat down and we've done nothing. to. Let me just memorize a, a, a ton of scripture and just recite this. But having memorized it, it's permeated his heart. And having permeated his heart, it's overflowing into everybody he encounters into every situation that he finds himself in. So he begins to ask the question again, recalling the events of Acts 19 and and, and the mob and the crowd. He says, what do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus? He's not talking about being a gladiator and and facing animals, but he's saying, do you remember uh, when I was in Ephesus and the time I spent there and how everybody turned against me and how the mob was incited and, and, and sought to bring me down? But yet, even in the midst of these things, I stood for the gospel of Jesus Christ and I testified to the goodness of the resurrection, even as those I sought to intercede on behalf of sought my life. If we're to look at this and and just say, man, that makes no sense. But is this not what we are tempted to say within our hearts when somebody tells us of some significant sacrifice they're willing to take on for the gospel? When someone in our family or one of our friends comes to us and they say, this is the craziest thing. I'm going to leave a good paying job. I'm going to leave my hometown. I'm going to take my kids and I'm going to move to a far country. Do we not begin to run through the list of things that we say, no, hold on now. Have you really thought about this? Have you really counted the cost? And we run through the super spiritual language of trying to talk some good sense into these people. Have you not first considered what it's going to do to your children? Have you not first considered what people are going to say about you? Have you not first considered how difficult? Let me just put your minds at ease. They probably have first considered this. Ask another question. Endeavor to pray with them. Endeavor to, endeavor to, to, to ask these same questions of yourself. God, would you have me to go? God, would, what would you have me to sacrifice? God, what would you have me to relent of? God, what freedom or what privilege would you have me to push to the backside? God, what would you have me do? How can I support my brother? How can I support my sister in the midst of this horrifically difficult thing you've called them to? If the resurrection is true, then the way we live should be markedly different. And it is. Paul, in the last half of 32, listen to how he kind of turns this. He says, if the dead are not raised, friends, if there's no hope for the resurrection, we are wasting our time. You get into Isaiah 22 and 13, and, and they're, they're huddled over in the city, and the Assyrians are about to uh, bring the walls down. They're going to take them into captivity. Now, in that moment, they have the strangest of responses. They know they're going to be taken into captivity. They know the walls are going to fail. And in that moment, you would expect to say that the just and the timely judgment of God is here. We need to bow down our faces before him. We need to repent so that perhaps 
he would relent and he'd send them home. But instead, what we find is they're busy filling their faces. They look at the situation and, and, and they quote this line and they say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. They are resolved to continue in their sin. They're resolved to continue in their indifference. And let me just tell you that if the resurrection isn't true, this should absolutely be the way that we live. We should be the most fantastic hedonists. We should absolutely live for ourselves. We should absolutely live for our, our pleasure. We shouldn't invest our time or our energy in anybody else. We absolutely shouldn't give any money to the poor. We absolutely should not be charitable people. We should be the most selfish, busy people pursuing all excellence of pursuit of pleasure possibly known to man if the resurrection isn't true. Because if it's not, there's zero hope. Our lives are making no difference you can make no impact into anyone's life fundamentally if the resurrection isn't true. But man, as I engage, as I look around, it's not so much that we live in, it's not so much that we believe that the resurrection isn't true, we just don't let it permeate all the way down. We love constructing these silos of operations. We, we love being, in some sense, Christians, but having it not be all that terrifically costly to us, costly to our family. There are a number of different things that we could look at, but this morning, as I prayerfully considered, I want us to think about three. I want us to think about three areas that we've kind of just said, man, these are, these are off limits. Let's think about the idea of bitterness. 1 John 4.20 he says, if anyone says, I love God, raise your hand this morning if you love the Lord. It's all but like two or three in here. And so if we're to say that I love the Lord and you hate your brother, you are a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he cannot see is not able to love the God whom he has not seen. This is terrific conflict in our heart. That the truthfulness of our vertical relationship is met out on the horizontal plane of all those we engage in. Now listen, listen. You may be in the midst of this and you're suffering a terrific fracture of relationship with somebody. Maybe in fact for you it is a brother and so this is just really on the nose for you. What he's talking about isn't this kind of periodic, I had a brother who's six years older than me. If I were to count up the number of times I hated him, whoo, let's just not go there. But what he's talking about is a heart decidedly set against being restored to one's brother or sister. That you would look and every time you think of them, you're just kind of overcome with bitterness and overcome with anger and overcome with hatred towards this person. And you are unwilling to let go of that bitterness. You're unwilling to let go of it. Well, when the truthfulness of John 4.20 says that you can't rightly say that you love God and hate your brother comes up in connection to that, this is what we do. We just kind of do this juke and we move to the other side of it. And we say, that's really just kind of a minor element of the text. I just won't read 1 John anymore. Well, this creates a significant problem because 1 John 4.20 remains true even in the midst of this. Even in the midst of your sin and even in the midst of your struggle. But this is the gracious and loving kindness of our God who finds us in our particular sins, and he bids us come out. He bids you let go of the bitterness. He bids you to let go of the hurt. and He bids you to let go and, and to experience his love in the midst of these things. We just think about hypocrisy wholesale. 
Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, quoting Isaiah in Mark 7, 6. He just absolutely nails it. He says, his people honors me with their lips, but their heart is from me. In vain do they worship me. In vain do they worship me. It is much easier to testify, to give lip service, to speak as if we love the Lord and actually have it be not impactful to the way that we have to live. If my kids are only ever measuring the truthfulness of the way that I live my life on, on what I tell them to do, I'm the most amazing dad ever, like game, set, and match. But unfortunately, they've been given this, this really up-close and, and, and invested involvement behind closed doors to all the various ways that I fail over and over and over again. And I'm talking about Sunday morning failures. But this is the reality that we live in. That we are constantly going to fail. That we're constantly going to be in the need of God's grace. And James, in some sense, some sense offers a corrective and offers a greater window into this. In James 1, through 25, simply he implores, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. God calls us to be effectual doers. He calls us to be impactful. He goes on and says, for if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, so the law that sets free and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He'll be blessed in his doing. Sunday after Sunday and life groups and Wednesday nights and Bible studies and devotionals and whatever, whatever way you are working about pursuing the Lord and spending time with him, you're given numerous opportunities to stare into the reflection of what God's heart is so that staring into the reflection of God's heart, your heart might be likewise forever changed so that your heart might be impacting the lives of those around you. God's not looking for episodic experiences of emotionalism. He's looking for hearts that are forever changed and transformed, having spent time with him. Let's think about the idea of worry. Let's think about the idea of worry from Matthew 6. If, if we believe that God is sovereign, that he's holy, that he's upholding the world, that he's taking care of all these things, then it has significant impact into the way that we address fear, anxiety, and worry. We need to be constantly reminded of these things. Look at what he says in Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about the body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air that neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father clothed them. Are you of not more value than they? And he goes on and he talks about the flowers of the field and he, he calls us into the midst of these things. And so in verse 31, he says, therefore don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, people without hope. People without hope or without a promise of resurrection seek after these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Listen to what the corrective is. Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In the midst of 
all the various stress and pressure of our lives. God calls us to an encounter and a prolonged experience and time spent with him. It sets us free from bitterness. It removes from us the stain of hypocrisy. It makes us put down our cell phones and quit looking at the world and quit concentrating on all those things around us and to focus on him. It sets us free. And the truth of it sets those free in our community. We find people caught up in bitterness. We find people absolutely bent over living a life of hypocrisy because they think it matters how other people see them. Think about how devastating it is for somebody living in the midst of a hypocrisy to have their inward life exposed. They live in constant terror that somebody would know the real them, that somebody would know their sins, that somebody would know their struggles. Now, typically, unfortunately, what a lot of Christians do is seek to expose other people's hypocrisy, right? Well, let me just expose them. Let me just show everybody what an awful wretch they are. Well, you're going to drive all the deep hypocrites even further down if, if they think that you're traveling around and you're, like, you're the hypocrisy inspector. But instead, we show people the goodness of God, that there is no reason to live in fear. But instead, we have this gracious God who meets us in the midst of our sin and who invites us to come and to know him and to be set free from the need of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy seeks to please the people around us, not caring for the distance of our heart to the Lord. When we don't care what people see, when we don't care what people around us think, then we feel comfortable exposing our vulnerability and being known and being loved and being supported in the midst of this. As Christians, we need to be those who invite the hypocrites to lay it down and to be real vulnerable and broken. We need to be a place where people can come forward and say, man, I I do worry. I I hear that God is sovereign. I hear that he's almighty, but I still worry because I can't keep hold of these things. We don't chastise these people and say, what's wrong with you? Have you not read the text plainly? What's wrong with you? Can you not see how these things are working? We invite these people to recognize over and over and over again the security of our relationship and the security of their relationship, that even in the midst of fear and anxiety and worry, that they have a greater opportunity to draw near to the throne of grace. That God in his kindness has allowed them to experience in some sense this great need for someone close to them. And he desires to be that. And he desires to be that. Verse 33, Paul calls them back and wants them to understand the the damaging association that can be exported from the Isle of Crazyville over here. So he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now you're thinking, this is what I came for. I can't wait to distance myself from awful people. You see, I've got this coworker, and man, does she have a mouth on her. And, 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 and he's so uh, loose and engaged in all these other relationships. Oh, I can't wait to not spend time with him anymore. I'm just so relieved. I just, this is just a sermon for me. Well, let's be, in, let's be informed. The Apostle Paul isn't addressing lives of those around us. In fact, he's already touched on this in 1 Corinthians 5. In verses 9 through 13, he is clearly talking about people in the church. He's clearly talking about people in the church. 
Back in verse 9 in chapter 5, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. In essence, you'd have to move to a monastery. And even in this monastery, it'd have to be just you. And even being just you, you'd have to not talk to yourself because you, my friend, are a lowly sinful wretch. That'd be a lonely existence, would it not? Not even talking to yourself, being alone. Oh, I'd lose my best friend. And so look what he goes on to say. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he's guilty. And then he runs through the same list. When we tolerate heresy within the church, we allow it to thrive. And when it thrives, it begins to impact. And when it impacts, it infects. And when it infects, it destroys the intimacy corporately, corporately, that we're able to enjoy with the Father. So Paul wants them to understand the devastating nature. It's interesting that when he opened this passage, he referred to it as them. You have these people over there engaging and being baptized for the dead, and that's the way they saw it. Oh, they can engage in this errant belief over here. It doesn't fundamentally impact me. They can be wrong, and I can be over here and be fine. And so to the people who would think this, he says, wake up. Wake up. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Quit wandering around and stumbling and bumbling and thinking everything's going to be okay when your brother's over here twisting in the wind, bending towards heresy, wandering off into the darkness of the abyss. He says, wake up. Don't go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. I want you to see the graciousness of this passage. When Paul writes, and he sees his church in Corinth, there, there's this kernel that kind of sits here in the middle, and they have the right belief set, and they're living graciously before the Lord, and they're doing everything right. And then you see people on this pole and people on that pole, and the people in the middle, the people who are doing everything right, have come to believe that those people over there are expendable and that their, their errant belief, their heresy, is not primarily impactful. They just need to leave them alone. Paul calls on us in the middle who are bending towards the left and bending towards the right to wake up, to wake up. Because the reality of the situation is some of us have friends that, that are terrible Pharisees. They're horrible legalists. Their life communicates that unless they do the right thing, they can't be loved by God. And you see this over and over again because when they do the wrong thing, when they engage in some sin, their life completely spirals out of control and they live this, this terribly hedonistic life. They live this life all for the pleasure of sin. But we sit over here in our aisle of Judgeville and we look to them and say, we just want them to keep them and they're crazy over there. And we have these friends on the other side of the line. <clears throat> they're not seeking to do everything right. They're just seeking to do everything they feel is right, to do everything uh, in excess and to extreme. And we were to ask both of these groups, I, my, my, my friend who pursues nothing but pleasure, do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in Christ? And he would say, oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, absolutely I do. And if you were to say, well, it, it, it doesn't seem like it's having a terrific impact on how you live. They would accuse you of judging. They'd accuse you of any other number of things. And the same thing would happen. If you were to come to this friend over here and say, friend, it seems to me that in the midst of your rigorous rule keeping 
You just want to do the right thing and you want to do the right thing all the time. It seems to me, it seems to me that you're trying to hold on to the strength of your relationship with God by only doing the right things. Well, this person's memorized the entirety of the Bible because they're a legalist and they would say, this is just not true. I'm resting on the grace and I'm resting on this and I'm resting on that. But you're to say, man, I'm observing the pattern of your life. You're not, person, you're not a person who's resting on the grace and the goodness of God. You're a person who's resting on your ability to be perfect. And it's the gracious, loving kindness of our God in the extension of the gospel that pulls both of these people back. Paul says, you've got people in the midst of your fellowship that are being baptized for the dead, and you seem completely satisfied to just let them go about and to be wrong." Some of them, some of them have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. And some of us have family members. Some of us today, some of our church members here, some of the church members across our community, and in fact, entire churches perhaps, are filled with people who in some way have absolutely distorted the gospel or have come to believe some truth is not impactful. And it is fundamentally the most unloving and selfish thing we can ever do to say it doesn't matter. This is the wonderfully beautiful and difficult thing about being a Christian and recognizing that, that unity only exists in so much as I'm prompted by my great love for God to be visited upon the people that he allows me to do life with. And that doesn't expire or end at our property line around this church neither does it expire or end within your family and i believe god has called us and, and, and given to us the phenomenal privilege of welcoming people in welcoming people not into a church but welcoming people into a wonderfully grace-filled experience of his son jesus and to do this, we cannot be indifferent. To do this, we cannot be willing to just focus on our own lives. To do this is going to require sacrifice. To do this is going to require a great love for the people around you. To do this is going to require a significant investment of, of everything that you hold dear your time, your treasures. But this is what he calls us to. And it's absolutely worth it. It's absolutely worth it so that we can see men and women set free. Amen? So we can see them set free from the errant belief set that is pulling them away and so that we can see them returned and established to a right, loving, and gracious Gracious, gracious relationship with their Lord and Savior and ours. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that in the midst of this time that you would work in our hearts, you would establish yourself as king. God, I pray for those this morning that as they consider how they're living their lives. 
God, that your spirit will be working in their hearts and showing them all the various ways that they have lived a siloed faith. Not allowing what they know to be revealed in how they live. Or God, this morning that you would show them that the ways that they have lived have indicated how weak their belief in you truly is. But yet you wait with gracious arms. But yet you call them back to yourself. So God, I pray that this morning they would have a sense of your grace and of your mercy. God, that this morning that they would be the prodigal returning home. Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to your son. For whatever reason, they found themselves to be living far from you, living on their own. God, that you would continue to do a work of restoration and forgiveness in their heart. God, that they would have a sense of your openness and of your invitation to come and to know you as Savior and Lord, that they would submit themselves to you and be transformed and changed by the redeeming love paid for by the blood of your cross. And we, we pray these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.